James 1, 2 to 12. This is an important one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I am right now. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood that test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. You may be seated. Thanks, Kate and Jim. Wow. Hi, friends. My name's Nick, if we haven't met yet. I, uh, I love being part of this church. There's so much life and so many crazy things going on. Uh, we get to work together to bring God's kindness and God's kingdom down here on earth. going to, in a second, be continuing our sermon series in the book of James I love the book of James. You're not meant to have favorites, but if I did, it'd be my favorite book of the Bible. You know, like one of my Bibles, I was looking at it this week, there's so many notes in it, you can barely even read the text anymore. I love it. But James is very gritty, it's very real, it's very direct. As you heard from the scripture today, we're dealing with actually a very difficult topic, dealing with trials and suffering and pain. And what should be our attitude towards that? And the Christian attitude towards that is different than a lot of other worldviews and a lot of other religions to it. We should just somehow put up with it. Um, you should uh, pretend that it doesn't exist. I've called today's sermon, Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, for the misfortune of those like me who grew up with Ren and Stimpy, that dreadful cartoon <laughs> where the neurotic chihuahua is banging himself on the head with a hammer saying, happy, happy, joy, joy, and his eyeballs are bugging out. Just, you can just force yourself to do it. Um, and I did that as a counterpoint because actually our approach to it is different. Our approach ultimately is if we let him, God in his kindness, can use pain and suffering, even, yes, friends, even that for his good. Going to get to that in a second. Before we do, we all had some homework from last week where Ryan encouraged us to memorize that scripture, you remember? From uh, chapter 3, verse 17, 
right now we're all going to stand up and we're going to say it together. So come on, stand up. Don't let me stand here by myself. This is a priesthood of all believers. And, um, and some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, we're doing this. Have I joined a cult? Hey, don't worry about it. Just grab a cyanide latte at the cafe on your way out. And, uh, oh, that was a bit dark. What am I doing? Okay. Hey, James 3.17. And if you're a real smarty pants, you can shut your eyes because I've been trying to get it into my heart. You know, grafting God's word into our heart. Does it, you heard the phrase, remembering by heart? Grafting it into your heart where it bears fruit, it's a, it's a super blessing. So uh, why don't you join me? We'll say the citation at the beginning and at the end because that helps to bookend it. And for dullards like me, helps me to remember where it's from. So one, two, three. James 3, 17. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. He shows no favoritism and is always sincere. James 3.17. Oh, guys, sit down. You guys get an A+. Plus. I, get a, I get a B- because I'm still some words. I was actually a split second behind you guys saying them and I was cheating. Um, but, you know, I find it really hard to memorize Scripture, so I work really hard at it. Just keep on headbutting the brick wall till either I fall over or the wall does. That's the best way to do it. Um, but it is such a blessing. And in fact, the theme of that is going to be running through this whole series. You probably saw it. It seems like almost, this, almost like a list of virtues. Um, and it kind of is. And the book is an exhortation of that. It's an encouragement towards that. What I'll say, and a, and a guy called David, a theologian called David said this, the wisdom from above is at the very least it is three things. It's inherently practical, okay? It's also inherently supernatural, divine and supernatural, and it's also inherently Christ-like. It's practical. James is gritty and practical and real, gives us no wiggle room. The book gives us no wiggle room to wiggle out of it, okay? We're going to see that. So I apologize for the journey we're about to undertake. It's going to be tough. It's going to be great. It's going to be tough. Same time. Secondly, it's divine. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us in this. I can't do it. You can't do it without that. And lastly, it's Christ-like. It ends up centering, and rightly so, on the, the teachings and the life of Jesus. No other book in the whole New Testament other than the Gospels has the teachings of Jesus pound for pound more than the book of James. Oh gosh, we're going to need God's help today. Why don't I just pray and give it over to the Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. You've not left us to our own devices, lonely and isolated. You've given us each other. You work through the power of community. Your spirit working in community, your spirit working through your word as we, as we grapple with it and think through it, even the hard passages like this one. You're so kind. You're so kind, Lord. It's amazing that, that we get to come before you. I ask that today, Lord, we would have soft hearts for these hard words. Father, um, we know that, that soft words make for hard hearts, but hard words make for soft hearts. We want our hearts to be supple and useful and moldable, malleable for you. Lord, take me off of the stage. Let your word be center stage. Let us grapple with it. Come to grips with it because we love you. We ask it in your name. Amen. Have you noticed how sometimes 
the people who are going through suffering and trials over an extended period of time can often be the most joyful. I don't mean superficial, happy, happy. I mean joyful. Because happy, happy is an inch deep, right? But joy goes all the way down to the bone. It says in, in Nehemiah 8 that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Ergo some, a joyless Christian is a weak Christian. A joy-filled Christian is a strong Christian. But it's not determined by context, is it? Years ago, my wife and I were in West Africa. I won't name the country because the person is still there, but we came to this little fishing, fishing village. It was a, more of a town, actually, quite big. And, um, and it was in a hardcore Muslim context. And there was a woman who'd been living and working there for a couple of decades. She'd been pouring out her life teaching girls to read. She was with YWAM, and we've got a saying that YWAM folks will take on hell with a squirt gun, right? And um, let me just say, by the way, if you didn't know, James, who has been working here with our fourth through sixth graders, him and his wife, Rochelle, are going to start a YWAM base here in North County. If you are not stoked about that, you do not understand what I'm talking about. It's going to transform North County. All the churches and stuff, we are super pumped about this. Get alongside them, encourage them, support them, pray for them. It's a great endeavor. But this woman was there with YWAM in this little uh, village and uh, she had faced unbelievable persecution over those decades. She'd been beaten, she'd been spat on, she'd been robbed, she'd been socially ostracized, she'd been dragged before the court, she'd been dragged before their city council and demeaned and publicly defamed, you name it, she had, she had gone through that. For having the temerity to teach girls to read. But I'll say this, the most striking thing about her was her deep-seated joy. It was astronomical. After spending time with her, I just said to my wife, Honey, could we have just spent time talking with Jesus? My gosh, there was a joy that she had that went all the way to the bone. As we come to this passage, we're going to need to grapple with the difference between happy and joy because otherwise it does not make any sense. Where it begins here, it says, Consider a pure joy, my brothers and sisters. I just want to point out to begin with that, that James is an inherently pastoral letter. There's a deep thread of kindness running through it. You ever heard the phrase, you've got to be cruel to be kind? It's totally true. Because notwithstanding that here, he's, he's exhorting them. He's saying, brethren and sistren, uh, you beloved ones out there who were cast out throughout the nations, who had been sent out, actually ironically, by persecution. They were fulfilling the Great Commission because per persecution had come with Acts 8 and, Ro and um, Stephen who had been stoned. Because of that, they were flung out. But they were alone. They're out in the boondocks. And here he's writing to them this letter of pastoral kindness the first written chronologically likely in the new testament very pastoral also very direct cruel to be kind he pulls no punches at least 50 times i'd argue at least probably even 53 times in the 108 verses in the book of james he gives um, not just exhortations but actually directions on how to live very direct, very kind, and very direct at the same time. Here, it's pastorally motivated. And he says, okay, dear ones, consider it pure joy. Pure joy? Like, are we masochists all of a sudden? Do we just enjoy it when suffering comes? Because I don't. 
I don't know, are we, are we uh, like some of my Buddhist friends who will say that they kind of transcend it somehow, that it's a fake thing, it doesn't exist? What, what, is it, what does it actually look like to go through that as a Christian? I'm glad you asked. Before we get to that, you'll notice it also says, I'll put my gogs on here, it also, it also says whenever you face trials, not if. You're going to face them now if you are a follower of Jesus and you have not faced any trials or sufferings, then I'm so glad for you. Be blessed, dear one. I pray it may always be so, but likely you have. Jesus promised, in this world you'll have trouble. It's, it's, it's coming down the pike towards you. And where it says trials of many kinds, it's not talking about temptations, right? That's going to come actually next week. Ryan's preaching on that from verse 13 and on. The temptations that are outside of us, tempting us, towards uh, sin you know I can withstand anything but temptations that's coming that's next week right now it's talking about sufferings often persecutions or tough things that we're going through trials of many kinds why do trials come why does evil happen on this side of eternity there's this part of theology called theodicy. Can I have the slide up on the screen for a second? And we're going to drive on this for a little bit. Um, because the more I talk to people about this passage, the more I realize we can't not deal with this. But honestly, Christians generally, we do the chicken dance around this subject because it's a real tough one. It's real hard. It's often numbers amongst the biggest reasons why people will reject Christianity. They're like, I can't understand why there's evil. It's dealing with the problem of evil. Literally, uh, theodike, where the word comes from, is like God, but, but um, justification for God in the face of evil, right? As Mark Foreman says, we've got another problem when we come to the, the reason for good, not just the reason for evil. Why, does, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? They'll say, watch out for bad and good because they're slippery concepts, right? But why does good things happen to bad people? That's another whole question. We're not going to deal with that today. Why does evil exist? And you know, it's generally um, dealt with by disavowing or, 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 um, or somehow diluting one of those three propositions. I'm just simplifying a whole bunch of theology. So much ink has been spilt on this from Thomas Aquinas to Augustine all the way through till today, right? We're just simplifying for the sake of just getting into the subject. But I'll deny one of those three things, and I don't think we can. On the basis of the Word of God and on the basis of empirical evidence, I cannot deny any one of those three truth propositions. That God is great, omnipotence, He's all powerful. I, I affirm that. That God is good. Some people will. Say that, no, he's not good, he's evil, or he's capricious. Or if you're atheist, you'll say neither of the above, one and two are both, they're not true, right? I can't do that. Evil exists. Some people will deny that evil exists, right? I don't think we can do that. Especially New Age folks will say, or, or Zoroastrianism, and there's a few um, different religions who will say, well, it's just a figment of your mind. There's no such thing as evil. I'm like, I'm sorry. I look in the shaving mirror, I see it, right? But what about the first two? God is great. There's this 
philosophical and, and sometimes religious position like the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans had it, where they'd say it's called finitism, that somehow God or gods are, are limited in their power. I'd say, no, no. He, he's the Lord. He knows from ancient times or still to come. He says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. He is the powerful one. He is the mighty one. I don't think, I don't think we can do that. I don't think we can delimit God. Some people will, will actually sneakily kind of redefine good. Sometimes it's a capricious God. Islam is a little like that. You never really know where you stand. Some even Christians, and I respect them, although I disagree with them, will somehow redefine good and say, well, actually, um, uh, whatever God does is good because he did it. And I'd say that's just sneakily rearranging the meaning. I don't think we can do that. God is kind and gracious. He's merciful. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. The, the God of the Bible, the God who I've experienced and you guys have experienced, I don't, think, I don't think we can do that. So what I want to say is that I believe all those things to be true. And yes, that does leave me with a paradox. And ultimately, I would encourage you, if you are with your friends and, and they know Jesus or don't know Jesus, they're like, why did this thing happen? And I'm not talking about moral evil where someone has sinned and someone has paid the price for it, though that happens a lot. right? There's, there's moral evil and natural evil. Moral things are where we do awful things to each other. There's natural evil, the things that are just awful that happen, like the hurricane that happened down in the southeast and, and that friend you have who's just going through awful suffering. If it's moral evil, then I think that we need to be honest about it, that we had agency in it. A guy called Hugo Grin, who survived Auschwitz, he was a rabbi. And he said, people ask me, where was God in Auschwitz? He said, God was right there. He was violated and blasphemed. The question is not, where was God in Auschwitz? The question is, where was man in Auschwitz? A lot of the time, it's got to do with our human sin, right? But also, whilst I have no answer, and I'd encourage you to be honest with your friends and say, I don't know. I'm going to ask God when I get there. It's okay. We don't have to be arrogant. I know that the common message amongst us Christians is we need to be know-it-alls. Truth is, people don't really like know-it-alls. It's okay to say, I don't know. When you're with a friend, I was with a friend last night. It's going through a tough, tough time. I'm like, mate, I don't know why. I'm so sorry. I have nothing other than my presence here to just stand with you. How can I help? It's okay to say that, but we have signposts. We don't have an answer. That's going to wait till we talk with God on the other side. But we have signposts. The human agency is involved. Somehow, either my sin or the sin of other humans has been involved in perpetuating evil. And, and also our sin collectively, as Romans 8 says, has brought creation into decay, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. And, and here's, here's where I want to come down and land on this. That God is close to the brokenhearted. You know it, some of you who have been there or are there, you, you know it. If you cry out to God, he will meet you in your heartache and in your hardship and in the trials you're going through. He really will and he does and he's faithful to that. And also he is not a God who suffering is unknown to. When Jesus went to the cross, 
He, didn't, he wasn't just tortured and beaten, though he was both those things. On the cross, he also took my sin and your sin and your shame and my shame and your condemnation and my condemnation. He took it upon himself on the cross, the most awful of suffering. He is, is not a God to whom suffering is unknown. And he finished with it and he gave us his freedom and his righteousness and his peace and his joy, he's given it's the greatest exchange of all time. So don't pretend you've got an answer to it because too much ink has been spilt and minds way smarter than the collective wisdom in this room have dealt with this. And they always come out saying, I don't know. And here I would like to point out that James doesn't even really deal with it, doesn't deal with the origins of evil. He's like, when it happens, what do you do? And what does he say to us? says to us that when you face these trials, be joyful. Man, I need to rethink my understanding of joy. Joy is going to need this higher wisdom. Joy is going to need something that I don't have. My gosh, the testing of your faith. You notice it says testing in verse 3. Jesus in, um, in Matthew 4 was tested out in the wilderness, the the term that's used there and later on in verse 12 actually talks about testing the authenticity of something, typically of coins, believe it or not. Is it a real coin? You know in the Olympics when they bite the gold medal, ever seen them do that? Do you wonder why they do that? Here's why. Because they're testing if it's pure gold. I worked on a gold mine for a while, believe it or not. And anyway, gold, when it's pure gold, it's really soft. It's surprisingly heavy, but they're biting it to test if it's real gold. What are you like when the biting comes? Are you going to be real or is it going to be fake? Is it going to be a husky Christianity, a happy, happy sort of superficial thing? Or is it going to go all the way down to our bones? And we're called to persevere. Some translations say steadfastly endure. We're called to be steadfast. We're called to endurance, faithful endurance when trials come. I'm reminded of a uh, science experiment I heard about a while ago. I was talking about it with some friends this last week or the week before. And the scientists created this thing called a biodome, which was a closed ecosystem, right? And in the biodome, they had perfect humidity. They had perfect precipitation. They had perfect chemical balance. Everything was just so, right, for plant growth. And the plants grew out of sight. Just, just growing all over the place and, and they had some trees in there and the trees grew super quickly as you can imagine. Everything was perfect. And they grew to a certain height and then they fell over and the scientists couldn't work out why. They were confused about why and they eventually realized no wind. Now some of you are putting the dots together. You're seeing where I'm going to go with this, right? The travails and the hardships and the sufferings And the trials of life are the wind that buffets us and beats us. What does it cause us to do if we've got a sweet spirit? If we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to renew us, our roots are going to go deeper into the Lord, aren't they? Our fibers are going to become stronger. All of this is not because God is mean. He's not vindictive. He's not capricious. He is not punishing you. Friends, if you are in a place of suffering hear nothing that I'm saying today as a a kick in the guts. No. God is not punishing you. He is not mean like that. He is a good and a kind father. 
I don't know why you're going through that, but we're here to be with you. And if you will allow it, if you will, I believe he can use it to strengthen you like the trees. And it's going to finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, so that you can can grow. This, This suffering that has cost you so much, it's so costly. Why would you waste it on some sort of dysfunction like bitterness or, or envy about someone else who's not going through this? Why would you waste that? It's so costly. I, I believe it, um, and, I, and I know some of you, dear ones, it's cost you. Don't treat it cheaply. God, this thing that you have allowed somehow in your economy to come about, I don't understand why you did, but Lord, I want to learn from it. I want to grow stronger from it. Even the most dreadful things, I have seen God turn them around. Can I have that quote up on the uh, thing by Catherine Marshall? And you guys will see echoed in this Romans 8, 28, that in all things God can work for the good of those who love him. You know the passage, and I would encourage you never, as Mark says, to ever say that to someone going through suffering. Oh, don't worry about it. God will use it for good. Like It's just hollow. Just sit there in the awfulness of it. Say, I'm sorry for the awfulness. I'm here for you. Just say that. But later on, when things are okay, when things are calm, read that verse. So I love this quote. Our God is the divine alchemist. He can take junk from the rubbish heap of life and melting this base refuse in the pure fire of his love, hand us back gold. To mature and persevere, to have the authenticity of your faith tested, to be someone who is in the crucible where the dross is melting away. There's a lot of Nick in this guy here. God in his kindness has not yet smited me. Right? He is kind enough that he is allowing the flames to burn the dross out. To be mature and complete. Some translate, older translations translate it as perfected. Not in the sense that God is perfect, but we're being refined. We're in the furnace. Like I said, guys, hard teaching. Are our hearts supple and open to hear this? Or are we resistant to it? How dare he? How dare God do that to me? I'd ask us to check our hearts on that. He's the Lord. He knows what he's doing. We, we mayn't see it at the time. Maybe before we die, we never will. I believe we ultimately will see the purpose. And I think in that, we will gain this wisdom from above. And in verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, yep, you should ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault. He's, he's kind and he, and he gives you this wisdom. But what kind of wisdom is it? Thanks for asking. Can I have that slide up? It just says ignorance, right? We start in this place, whether we are children or whether we are coming to something new. Maybe you're new to this whole you know, um, Jesus thing and maybe you've been dragged here by a friend and I'm not being offensive, please forgive me if, if it comes across like that. But you come from a place of not knowing something, well, what's the opposite of ignorance? Knowledge? Knowledge. Okay, well, it seems like the opposite, but I'd like to question that. The opposite of ignorance, and now I know something, I've got knowledge. But as Ryan said last week, there's a lot of really intelligent, stupid people out there, right? 
Some of the smartest minds I've ever studied with at different universities and seminaries, I mean, I love them, I care for them, but they're educated beyond their level of obedience. Because obedience is actually, oh, now we're getting towards somewhere near the opposite of ignorance. And at this point, uh, my dog comes to mind, our family dog called Asterisk, like, you know, like the red hot chili peppers symbol, right? And um, he's actually a pretty cool dog. He's a Boston Terrier, and he, he's a sweet little dude. He doesn't really excel at much in life apart from eating <laughs> and snoring and farting. They're kind of his specialties. I can't believe that someone just said that from stage. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel. Anyway, but he's, um, he, he actually knows quite a lot of stuff. They're, they're smart. They're kind of very stubborn, if you know Boston Terriers. But, but he, um, he knows words like walkies, and he gets all stoked. He knows words like din-dins, like dinner. He's pretty pumped about that. He, um, he also knows words like um, in your bed. He knows that. Doesn't always do it. In your bed, and he walks her over to his bed, then waits till I look the other way, and then does a cycle, and <laughs> ends up back on the couch that he's not allowed to sit on. Or, how's this one? We say, bath time. Here's what he does. He like tiptoes, like till, literally till he thinks he's out of earshot, and then he shoots out for the backyard, right? <laughs> so, what I'm, my, silly point. My, my point is that knowledge is not enough, it's actually obedience, because when we're in that place of following God, we make it towards, or we move towards the next one, which is what? Wisdom. Wisdom from above. Here's the honest reality. Christianity is actually not that complicated. I know we make it very complicated with all our theologizing and all our you know, talking and all of the bits and pieces that we do, mainly because we want to wiggle out of that which we know to be true. Jesus came to earth. He died on the cross for us. He resurrected from the dead. He has given us freedom. He's given us his spirit for two things. So we can love God and love others. And surely in the working out of that, we need to encourage one another and work through it. But to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and even our money, and even our spouse, and even our car, and even our hobbies, and everything, it's everything, okay? It's, it's, the, whole, it's the whole lot. And to love others, to pour ourselves out ceaselessly. To pour ourselves out, it's not complex. As the old saying goes, if you have followed Jesus for more than three months, You've heard enough sermons. You don't need to hear any more sermons. You just need to obey that which you already know. And of course, we come together here on a weekend and during the weeks in our community groups and we encourage one another. And because me, I'm like a leaky bucket. You pour in here and it, and it, and it goes out there. So I need to be re-reminded about that which I already know. So there is a good reason to meet together, but it's not to gain more stuff. You already know enough stuff. We just don't want to be obedient to it because we're going to wiggle out of it. And that's exactly where James goes. What does he say with what comes next? If you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives generously. This is awesome. Okay, but it's a whiplash. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Gosh, that seems a bit mean. Does that mean I give myself a frontal lobotomy? No, 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 no. No, faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is the presence of action. On, on that which you know to be true, do it. You don't understand everything, the stuff about God I do not understand. The presence of evil, 
in our world for one. And there's a number of other things too, honestly. But I want you know to be true. What does it mean to be a woman, to be a man of integrity, to be a person of compassion, to be a person who is wise, to be a person who is spirit-led, right? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we can follow all the words of this law, says in Deuteronomy 29. You know enough. You don't know everything, but you know enough. Follow him regardless. And here where it says, don't be like a wave of the sea. Don't be, this person is like a double-minded person. The, the term there is actually talking about split allegiance. The, the actual um, literal translation of that is double-souled. Don't be two-souled, as in S-O-U-L-E-D. Don't have two souls. Don't think, well, I'm going to take a little, little pinch of Jesus over here, and then I'm going to take just a dollop of Nick, and then I'm going to take, throw in here just a handful of other philosophies, and, and that's, you're not going to end up happy. If you sit on the fence, all that happens is you get a sore backside. Friends, with Jesus, it's either full on or not at all. He respects and loves us enough. He gives us an option, but it's, it's, one, it's one or the other. And then, if you'll excuse me, it feels like there's this kind of jammed in thing here about the rich and the poor. When I, when I read this uh, last week when I was reviewing it, I was struck by like, wow, I didn't think that would come next. It's like a jarring thing. What is he talking about? Joy and suffering and, and wisdom and Bang, and there it is. And there's a few reasons for this. One is because um, it's got a lot to do with suffering and temptation. We'll get to that in a second. But another thing is that the first chapter of James is kind of like an executive summary. Or like a, um, uh, I don't know, a table of contents for what happens in the rest of the letter. You're going to see this theme come out again and again over this sermon series. What do we do with money? And what do we do with wisdom? What do we do with suffering? You're going to see these themes cycling through. Remember, this was read out to the home churches by the leader, by James the Apostle, the half-brother of Jesus, exhorting them, encouraging them. So, of course, it's going to repeat itself, but also because money and suffering have a lot to do with each other in both ways. And here, it's inverted. It's counterintuitive. Don't, don't you think? Is it just me? Where it says, believers in humble circumstances, talking about finances, those who are poor ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. They'll pass away like a wildflower. Can I have that picture up of the wildflower? Those who are rich are going to pass away. I grew up in a sun-parched land called Western Australia where it would rain and the flowers had burst. It would just be bloom all over the place for a month or two. These flowers had come up and the bees would be buzzing and it was crazy. And then the sun would, like a baseball bat, beating you down if you're outside working, beating the flowers down, drying them out. So you've got wealth, you've got fame, you've got everything is wonderful. And guess what? It's great. It's here and it's gone. You're going to die. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Luke 12 and the parable of the rich fool who none of us want to be, but, but we are all rich, friends. Likely, $34,000, you're in the world's richest 1% of human beings per year, $34,000. If you earn $70,000, you are not in the world's richest half percent because it's exponential. You're in the world's richest 
2% or something, I forget what it is. But, but friends, we are all that, and there's perils attached to that. Camel passing through an eye of a needle. Oh, James has a lot to say. Jesus had a lot to say about money and finances and wealth. We're not going to pull any punches here in North Coast Calvary. We believe that the words of God can transform us, that Jesus' community can transform us, the power of the Spirit can transform us. We don't fully understand it all, but we're going to grapple with it and work through it together. What about if you're poor? Financially poor. James reminds us through his words that actually you have riches beyond your imagining. If you have Jesus, you have wealth beyond your imagining. And even practically here on earth, God is showing greater favoritism or greater confidence in you than in the wealthy folks. Believe it or not, because he's saying, I know this one will remain steadfast. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that he will never test us beyond what we can bear. Believe it or not, and I'm not saying you shouldn't work hard. I'm not saying you shouldn't be diligent because you should do both those things. But God is saying, I know this one won't fail. That rich guy over there, well, he's too weak. Is this an inversion of our understanding? It was for me. Got pretty quiet in here. Must have been something going on. Eh? And it, here we come down to end. And I want to invite out the mates uh, here who are going to lead us in a song in a second. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, remaining steadfastly, steadfastly enduring, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised. And it's not like a, um, a royal crown here. That's not what... Uh, James is talking about. He's talking about the crown that the, the victorious conquering general would wear as they came in with the procession or, or the crown, that would be the laurel crown that would be put on the one who runs a race and wins, wins the race. That's the crown. And this is going to be very hard for some of us to hear. But that crown is talking about salvation. Some people have said, oh, it's talking about believer's reward. And there is such a thing. We don't have time to go into it. I don't believe it is. But Lou is saying at the end, whether your faith is real, will be tested, it will be shown. And if it is real, you'll receive the crown of eternal life. Now, some folks don't like it because they say that this undermines the concept of grace. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he changed his ways later on, but early on he said, this is an epistle of straw. This shouldn't even be in the Bible. He questions its canonicity, right? Whether it should be in what we hold as scripture. But he said, it's by grace alone, sola gratia, it's by faith alone, sola fide. That's how we're saved. And, and he, I believe, misread James with respect to him. He, he misread it. James is not saying you do good things and are made right with God. He's not saying that. He's saying, as many in his wake have said, like Bonhoeffer and many others, he said, actually, we are renewed and remade and reshaped and reformed and given freedom by Christ's work on the cross. And if we have received that gift, it'll be proved true in our lives. Because grace alone saves, but the grace that saves is never alone. Right? Right? I'd like to invite the guys, oh, here they are, they're coming back out. And I want to end here with a brief, dorky, hokey story about my son, Moses. Can I have the thing up on the screen about Mosey, the superhero? <laughs> this is 
Oh, I just want to jump into the screen and hug him. He's a big, hairy teenager now, but this is when he was little. <laughs> and um, he used to dress up as a, uh, as a, he thought it was Superman. I didn't have the heart to tell him that actually Superman's undies looked very different than, than his boxer shorts. And he, he found this crazy pillowcase someone had given us from Turkey or somewhere, and he'd pin it around him, and he'd sit on this tire swing, and I'd whiz him up in the air, like it was really high, like probably 12, 15 feet up in the air. And he was standing here, he'd fly, and he was flying. You, in his mind, you could tell by his whooping that he felt he was flying, and it's great. And here's the trouble. As a friend of mine said this week, as Christians, it's like we're the kids who put on the fireman's outfit and think that we're firemen. It's not just saying a prayer. It's not just like, I don't know, voting a certain way or doing a certain thing that means we're Christians. It's not. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than superficial. It goes all the way down to the bone. Being someone who is allowing the Spirit to renew and refresh and remake and reshape us is allowing ourselves to think for a second that God can work even in spite of the awful things, even through the awful things. This is a hard teaching, friends. Only then will we be coming to the place where we can be seeking the wisdom from above. standing deep down all the way to our bones believe that he is our living hope then also comes with admitting that we're in a broken place things are not as they should be as uh, Plantinga said 
things are not as they should be. We're not in a place where we are perfected. The, the world is full of sin and brokenness and hurt. So what are we going to do? How are you going to live? Let's live with this wisdom from above. Lord Jesus, my prayer today is a simple one, that you would give me and give us the strength as we're going through hardship, Lord, to still look to you. We're not going to deny it. We're not going to shove our heads further and further in the sand. It's real and it's awful. And Lord, our faith extends to believing that even in it, through it, even because of it, Lord, you can be growing us. So our prayer is that. Now, prayer, Lord, is that we would continue to care for the, the dear ones amongst us who are going through hardship. They are not alone. Let them not believe enemy Satan's lies that they are alone. We are around them, and we're going to help as a church and individually, Lord. We're going to do that. We, we give you our word on that. Help us to live up to our word on that. And Father, we long from this wisdom from above. Fill us with joy, joy everlasting, joy unstoppable. Wonderful Jesus. And bless these mates today, Lord, today and this week. May they go out. May they be the people who are set free. May they be the people who face adversity and hardship and trials and suffering in a way that honors you, in a way that cares for others. May they be the remarkable people who you have made them to be. In Jesus' name.